think I've just become better at noticing those little mechanical details and those little things that can make a story just that much better by reading somebody's submissions. This is Lit Mag Love. Thanks for listening. My name is Rachel Thompson, and I'm a writer and editorial collective member at Room Magazine. And Lit Mag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, literature, art, and feminism since 1975. And by my own project, We Write, We Light, online courses and more to help you polish and publish your writing. Now, each episode of Lit Mag Love takes you behind the scenes of a Lit Mag to give you insights about what's going on, where I talk to writers and editors about their writing practice. I delve into what they like in submissions to journals, how the journals are working, the structures, and current trends and topics in the literary scene. And this episode, I talked to Donna Tallarico, who we heard from at the beginning about noticing things in writing and the benefits of being an editor and being able to read writing and how it informs your own writing practice. And Donna is the founder of Hippocampus, which is not only an online journal, it's also a conference, a publishing house. And stay tuned, you're going to hear about the camper tour plans that may unfold at some point in the future of Hippocampus too in this episode. So I want to welcome to the Lit Mag Love podcast today, Donna Tallarico. Hi, happy to be here. Thank you. So one thing I know about you already, just from digging around a bit, is that something we both have in common is being both a writer and a bit technologically inclined, shall we say. And so I'm wondering about how your knowledge of technology helped you launch Hippocampus back in 2010. Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, one of the biggest things that came to mind when I was starting the online journal, I figured, you know, print takes uh, quite a bit of overhead. So I thought I already have the digital skills, so this makes sense. But today it's easier than ever to start a website with tools like WordPress. You know, you don't necessarily need to be a programmer or a graphic designer to get something up relatively quickly. But I think what I was able to bring to the table was a little more understanding of the user experience, you know, UX, that it's also known as. So I think I really just paid attention to the reading experience online with being deliberate in our word count because, you know, now long form is kind of making a comeback. But when we first launched, you know, people were still, you know, just wanting to read quicker pieces online. So I think those are some of the things that I really thought about search engine optimization. How will people find us? You know, if they don't know we exist already, they're not going to be searching for Hippocampus magazine. So how on the back end of the site and with our content, can we use words like submit your nonfiction, creative nonfiction, essays? How can we work those in so people can find us? So a little bit of user experience knowledge, accessibility, realizing that people with differing abilities will be accessing our website. So keeping that in mind and then along with the search engine. So yeah, so that's a little bit about how the tech and e-commerce knowledge helped me. Wonderful. And I also know that your background is in journalism and it seems like at the heart of everything you do is storytelling. And I'm wondering if you can think back to maybe the first story you remember being told by someone you knew or just imagining the possibility, I guess, of becoming a storyteller yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the first story that I really remember somebody telling me was my mom. And she was telling me the story about the day that I was born. And she was in the hospital and I guess her water broke or something as it does. And so she was in the waiting room 
or, you know, at some lobby in the hospital and she was standing there with her legs crossed, kind of like shaking almost so I didn't fall out. She was young. She was only 18. And then a man who was in there and said, are you having a baby? And my mom said, I hope not. <laughs> and she was just <laughs> laughing because she meant she hoped I didn't fall out in that moment. Obviously, she knew that she was pregnant. But, you know, just that live storytelling and kind of that, I don't know, just it was just a funny story. And just the way she told it and retold it, it just wouldn't have been as funny if she had told it a different way. So kind of just like building that suspense and that ending to leave the reader hanging or make them laugh. So I always liked how my mom told stories and I, I think that helped. And my parents were kind of traveling entertainers and I was by myself. So I would just always talk to everybody and wanted to know what their story was. And, you know, why are you here? Where did you come from? You know, I just love the stories behind people. So I think that that curiosity just drove me for everything that I've done. Curiosity sounds like a great compulsion engine for a storyteller. Now you've taken an MFA program as well. And you said of that program that it helped you grow the thick skin you needed to survive in the literary landscape today. And I'm wondering, I guess, how are you surviving that landscape and what approaches do you take to help other writers survive it? I think one of the things that you learn in an MFA program, because you are getting feedback and critique from your classmates and, and you know, your classmates become your friends, but they're not like your childhood lifelong friends. They're not your mom or your dad or your aunt who thinks that, you know, you're the writer in, in that circle. So they think you're great. But then to be surrounded by other writers who know the craft and are learning the craft along with you or your mentors and your teachers that have been through it. So I think what I learned is that you need that feedback to grow as a writer and just be open to it, you know, because ultimately most people want you to succeed and they want your work to be better. And you don't necessarily have to take their advice because you could get conflicting feedback, but it's all about taking a little bit from everything that you hear, processing it, and then seeing how you can use it to make your work better. So that has really helped me a lot as a writer, but also as an editor and going through our submissions and, you know, just realizing that when somebody sends out their work, they're trusting you to read it, to give it, you know, thoughtful care that you're going to consider their submission. So I don't know, just kind of thinking like an editor and when you are giving feedback to do it with kindness and to do it in a constructive way. You know, I see some literary magazine editors or people that just work in some editorial capacity go on Twitter and say, I just read this awful submission. And, you know, I just would never think of doing something like that. I like to keep all of that and any of my thoughts and my subconscious, what I might be thinking to myself and just share the thoughtful, kind, helpful stuff. In previous episodes, we've been talking a lot about creative nonfiction, um, just by happenstance of some of the editors that I've had on the show. And one of the things that we've heard from them are sometimes tough love insights that I don't think cross the line in terms of what you're saying about those tweets saying they've read an awful story that sounds kind of ridiculous. But these previous guests have said things like, your feelings alone are not enough to make a story, and maybe your childhood isn't that interesting. <laughs> so I'm wondering, do you agree with that, having like you were reading solely creative nonfiction? And I guess, what are some of the qualities in the best CNF, speaking of focusing on the positive? Yeah, you bring up a, a great point about the, is my childhood interesting enough? You know, I think especially with creative nonfiction, when people are writing something that's so personal to them, I think it's easier to get your thoughts out on paper and, and write, you know, I, and other people might have explained it this way too, but it's more like a journal entry, a diary entry sometimes. And you have to take a step back and remember that a reader 
is going to interact with that content. So what do you want the reader to take from it? And I think that's what makes a good creative nonfiction piece. Sure, it's personal, it's a slice of your life, but you also have to you know, pay attention to the reader's needs. And I think that's where like the marketer in me comes in because, you know, we're always thinking about audience. Well, what is the goal of this? You know, how does it pertain to the audience? Is it relevant? So I think as a literary magazine editor, you can take that same approach when you're looking at these submissions, you know, and we don't always have time to send back personal feedback for every story, but those stories that are almost there, yeah, we can totally say those things like this is important to you, this mattered to you, but how does it matter to the audience? You know, what can they take away from it? We have a piece that ran recently that we took the last paragraph off of it because it was kind of tied up in a neat little bow and it just, it was kind of like just tacked on. But we said, let's remove this last paragraph because it ends stronger without it. So little things like that. Like we find that the ending usually needs work. I see that too, because it's like if they land the beginning, if the beginning is solid, then you're going to read on. But then the second trouble area tends to be the ending. Yeah, and it either it either just ends or it's tied up too neatly in a bow. And, you know, it's like, and then I learned all about this about myself. So I think sometimes just leave, not necessarily leaving the reader hanging, but trusting the reader that they can make a conclusion themselves. And I think sometimes we try too hard with the ending. Yeah. I want to ask you, because we were talking about this a bit before too, about the constructive kind feedback that you give, Mm -hmm. and also about inviting writers into telling their stories in Hippocampus. What are the ways that Hippocampus invites writers whose stories haven't been heard into the magazine? So whose stories are traditionally not as well lauded, let's say, in the writing community, in the literary magazine community? Hippocampus, we have a blind reading process. So our reading panel, um, we use the submittable software. So anybody familiar with that who's ever been in the back end, our reading panel is set to like the lowest permission levels. So I think that's one thing that we take seriously is judging the work for the work itself. So we don't know if somebody is a high school student, a first time writer, or if they are an established author with a couple of books out. So that's kind of the first thing that we do. You know, we like to be inclusive and allow anybody to submit to us. And we just advertise for submissions in, you know, as many places as we can. And we definitely want more diverse voices in our magazine, more stories. We don't really necessarily have any theme issues or anything like that. And we don't do a lot of things that are necessarily timely in the news about current events, but it almost happens organically anyway. This month, we have a story about an immigrant from Mexico and it's called On the Bus. And it's about these three experiences she had on a bus, you know, as just a young woman finding her way. But, you know, as far as how to get more diverse pieces, I think it's just about being active in the literary community and making posts and calls for submissions in the right places. So all of our audiences and anybody with a story to tell knows that we're looking for them. Yeah, I like what you said about being active in the literary community and finding the right places too to make sure that the welcome mat is out there. I'm sure it also doesn't hurt that you're not dissing people's writing on Twitter like you mentioned. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I don't see that often, but I think the one time I just saw something and it just really stung. And I thought, you know, if you submit it to that magazine, you might think, oh my gosh, was that me? Was that my work? I'm going to go in and check my submittable dashboard and see if mine's in progress to know, you know. So I don't want anybody, I don't want to give anybody extra anxiety because, you know, they already are waiting patiently for you to get back. But yeah, about the literary community, I think sometimes when we're promoting our literary magazine, 
we're promoting on our own social media channels, so the people within our own circle. And then when we post to Facebook and Twitter, for the most part, it's only people that already follow us that are seeing what we do. So you kind of need to get out of your little circle and bubble and post proactively in other communities or start to follow more people, you know, share your stories in more places. And because I just think you need to amplify it to let people know that you're out there. Because I think sometimes we just get so caught up in promoting to the people we know already. Even with book launches, we're just promoting in the groups that we're already part of. So we kind of need to step out and just, you know, shout from the rooftops to other places. So can you tell me a little bit about the origins of Hippocamp and how you strive to make it an inclusive space? I mentioned to you before we started, I was listening to your podcast interview on brevity, where you're talking about some of the approaches that you took for inclusivity. The Hippocampus started in 2010. Our first issue was in 2011. But around that time, professionally, I was speaking at conferences in the e-commerce world, but then also in higher education and web and marketing realm. And I just really love the conference community because you're you're going somewhere and you're with people that have the same challenges that you do you know so maybe you don't get the support in your office or from your institution or from not necessarily your direct bosses but like the bosses above the boss so you can kind of just you know learn more and develop professionally but also spend that time in the hallways and at the lunches and the meals talking to people like you and learn from each other and how you overcome things. So when I started Hippocampus, I knew I wanted to have some type of interactive element, but we couldn't do it right away. You know, you have to build a readership and develop an, a name for yourself and get people to like what you're doing. So at, at about the five-year mark was when we decided to do the conference. And the one conference I go to is called High Ed Web. It stands for Higher Education Web Professionals, but we call it High Ed Web. And affectionately, people joke and they call it Geek Camp because it's just a bunch of, you know, web people that get together. And then in the WordPress community, they have gatherings that are called Word Camps. And the whole camp idea is just people that are getting together, you know, the warm and fuzzies that you get from being with your tribe. So I, I like the idea of camp. I was a Girl Scout. I went to overnight camp every summer. But then I just thought our name is Hippocampus. We have camp in our name already. <laughs> so I thought this is just too clever not to use Hippocampus. Makes sense, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we have to tag on, you know, a conference for creative nonfiction writers because, again, not everybody has heard of Hippocampus magazine. So when they see Hippocamp, they're like, what the heck is this? So we try to make sure we explain it. But as far as the inclusivity part of it, there's all different types of writing professional development. You know, you have your one-day workshops that you can go to. You can have the retreats where you go away and they're usually a smaller group, either in a secluded location or somewhere exotic and tropical, you know, and then you have MFA programs and online workshops. So I kind of wanted to mirror what I found at the marketing conferences I went to and um, allow people to submit proposals, you know, rather than going out and hire faculty members, just put a call out for session presenters. You know, I wanted this to be more like a TED Talk or like a South by Southwest presentation and less like a class. So with that, we get to hear from all sorts of voices. You know, you don't have to be a professor for 20 years in writing to share a lesson with somebody. You know, you could be relatively new in your career and find an awesome way to promote yourself or do something really cool in your community and you have wisdom and insight to share. So that's the idea behind having the open presentation model where people submit proposals and we pick from there. 
I know that professional development is something that not everybody has the funds to do. So we have a scholarship program just to try and get people there, have student discounts. It is a little bit of a challenge because conferences are expensive to run. And um, so to find that price point where it can be affordable for people to not just buy a ticket but to travel there, but to also be able to, at the very least, break even for the expenses of running a conference. Uh, we're going to take a short break, but after the break, I want to ask you a bit more about the editorial side, so the, like, sure. what's happening behind the scenes at Hippocampus. Okay. The Lit Meg Love podcast is co-presented by Room Magazine, Literature, Art, and Feminism since 1975, and Room has published fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, art interviews, and book reviews for 40 years. It can be found at roommagazine.com, where the latest call for submissions is on the theme of magic. The other presenter for the podcast is myself and my project, We Write, We Light. I offer online courses, including the course also called Lit Mag Love, which is now open for registration. It's a five-week online course to help you publish in journals, and I invite writers to get smart, fearless, and published with lots of help from me. You can find out more at litmaglove.com. So I'm back with Donna Tallarico from Hippocampus, and I want to ask you, Donna, what has been the most rewarding part of editing for you, and maybe tell us a bit about how editing has informed your own writing? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think the most rewarding part of running Hippocampus for me is getting emails from contributors who have gone on and maybe we weren't their first publication, but maybe we were part of their journey and they got a book deal or they just did something really rewarding in their own career. And they write back and take the time to let us know what the experience working with us meant. And, and just even, even when people don't write me, but when I follow contributors on Twitter and I see what they're doing and how they're progressing and how they're continuing to get published, it just makes me feel really good that we were part of that. But it's extra meaningful when people, you know, take the time to send a, a thank you note. I believe so much in gratitude and I'm always sending thank you notes and I never expect them. So when I get them, I'm just like, oh my gosh, that was so nice. I know how, you know, how much time it takes to do that. So that's really rewarding for me. We recently published, well, it was last June. It was about a year ago. We published an essay called Maybe We Can Make a Circle by a woman named Nicole Piasecki. And her father was killed in a school shooting. And she sent us that essay and it just, it was kind of a life-changing experience for her, I think, to have that essay out there. But Long Reads just picked it up and they did it as part of a three-part series with another essay that um, a woman with a similar story. And then the third piece in the series was the two writers having a conversation about grief and gun safety. And it's just, you know, so many people are reading it and it was just neat to see the story back out there, you know, and that more people are paying attention to it. So that was a rewarding experience. As far as how editing has informed my own writing, the example I shared before about how we chopped um, the ending off one of our stories, and we've done that before. That's something that I tend to do in my own writing, because I, going back with the journalism background, your story has a lead. So basically, you're telling people what the story is going to be about, and then you tell the story. When I started my MFA program, I was writing my essays like a feature article or like a news article. And I realized, no, no, that's not how you do it when, um, you know, when you're approaching it from a more creative writing aspect. So I think for me, seeing not necessarily the mistakes that writers are making, but the things they're doing that aren't really furthering their story and noticing it when I'm looking at somebody else's story. Then I can go back to my own essays and my own memoir and say, wow, I really have done those things myself. So 
I think I've just become better at noticing those little mechanical details and those little things that can make a story just that much better by reading so many submissions. I definitely feel the same way. And I think the lesson that people can take away from that too is just how important just reading writing is for developing our own craft too. Yeah, absolutely. And and the volunteers for our reading panel, they say the same thing. You know, they say how reading for Hippocampus or, you know, or anybody that reads for a literary magazine, I'm sure they'd agree that, you know, reading these essays, you know, that sometimes people submit them too early. They truly do. They get excited because they got some positive feedback on it, but they're just, they're not there yet. And I think we can all learn from writing. And then after we take a break from the queue, we can pull up our own Word document and say, hmm, let's take another look at this with fresh eyes. I want to pick up on what you said about feedback too, because one of the things I like to let writers know is what kind of suggestions, what they should expect if they have work accepted by you. I mean, you're talking about the story of cutting off the ending that you will make some developmental suggestions. Is that true by and large? Well, we were a monthly publication until this year. This year we decided to do 10 issues a year. So January and February and September and October will be like double issues. So we have a fairly quick turnaround time. If we were publishing quarterly, we would have a lot more lead time between each issue to work with writers one-on-one. So because of our quick turnaround time, we generally try to take stories that are pretty much there and just do a copy edit. But every now and then, like this one with the ending, will suggest maybe shifting some paragraphs around or removing a paragraph or condensing a couple things. And then usually in those cases, we'll share the draft with the writer and say, hey, is this okay? And go back and forth a little bit. But generally, we try to accept pieces that don't need as much developmental work. Now, we kind of have like a tiered decline process of, you know, just the straight no, um, or sometimes we'll send it back with some encouraging feedback and here's you know why we didn't pick it but on some stories that we really believe in we will invite them to resubmit to send a revision so they can take at least a month to work on it and then send it back to us we have a special category where people can do that so we know that it came um, back as a invite and then in that will definitely include some personal suggestions from members of the reading panel and then people might choose not to send it back to us because they think it's okay how it is because the feedback is subjective but we have a lot of people that take us up on that and we do end up running it we have a story this month i won't say which one because you know i don't want to publicize that you know send it back to us but in um one of our most recent issues we did accept uh, a rewrite and it was better because he sent it back now here's something i do want to point out the first time we did this somebody sent it back a couple hours later (laughs) and i thought okay we need to change this and we said well please allow 30 days to send it back because they really didn't take time to process and really rework it and maybe have somebody else read it over if they just made some changes and sent it back a couple hours later you're engaging with the work deeply and you're asking them to have that same kind of engagement too. And I'm glad you mentioned that about the fact that you have published a piece that's gone through that process because sometimes what I hear from writers are, do they really mean it, that feedback? Like when they invite me to submit again, is that just a brush off? And you're saying, no, we want you to submit again. Just don't do it in five minutes. Take a month and and really look at it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, take some time to reflect, you know, take a couple days to think about what we said. And again, we're just, you know, one person or a group of people, depending on how many people offered the feedback. And maybe you don't want to take it, but if you do want to take it, yeah, spend the time. 
process it, think about it, work on it. And yeah, we are absolutely honest when we do that because we have a special link that we share to a category and submittable. So we're definitely genuine when we ask that. And you mentioned a piece that you published that went on to go on long reads. Can you tell me about any other recent pieces that you chose for publication and why you chose them? There's this one story that we have published in our May 2018 issues, and it's called Harry and Lovely Sometimes. And it's one of those slice of life essays. It's from an Indian Canadian woman, and she's reflecting back when she's in high school, she's taking a test, and she notices that she has armpit hair, you know, so it's almost just this coming of age story and becoming comfortable with who she is in her body. And I think it's an important essay to her personally, because she's sharing something that's so close to her and about her experience. But it also fits with this wider issue today that we're all talking about, you know, with our identities and with what is beauty and what is right, you know. It's getting warmer here in Pennsylvania, you know, do I really have to shave my legs today if I want to wear a skirt to work? You know, so I think these are just all decisions that we're grappling with. And in a time where we're wondering what societal norms are and why they're societal norms. So I think this story just, it hit me because I felt for that young girl who was in the desk taking her test and wondering if her classmates saw and if she felt ashamed and then how she grew comfortable with it. But then I just think about the issues that everybody is facing today, whether they're in high school or they're going, you know, into middle age and about how we're perceived. So I really like the pieces that deal with identity. And, you know, we have a whole reading panel that helps pick the stories, you know, and sometimes we pick things that wouldn't have been my first choice. But for me as an editor, I feel like the stories I'm drawn to are the coming of age stories or the stories about resilience, the stories about the underdog. You know, another story in the same issue and in the main issue is called Bagging the Office Bully. And it's about a young man about his summer job dealing with a manager that knew that this young teen boy might have been gay and he hadn't come to terms with it himself, but this manager gave him an extra hard time. So again, that's another story that we have in May that's about identity. And that just kind of happened by chance that we have two similar theme stories. But I think in creative nonfiction, we see a lot of that. Like I was saying before, like we don't necessarily ask for stories that are timely, but just what people are talking about and how they're feeling and what's making them reflect is it's reflecting in the essays and the content that we see. And you know, it's funny, I'm finally understanding like back in high school, when you learn how you have to when you're in a literature class, but you also learn why it's important to understand world history. It helps you understand why the writers were writing about what they were. Now I'm finally starting to get that, you know, in my late 30s. Like, oh, it's all making sense why we have to learn about history, you know, along with literature. That there's a context to the writing. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it kind of took me a long way to get there and, and say it. But yeah, that's what I meant, the context. You're echoing back from previous conversations in the podcast, so it hasn't aired yet, but we're talking about the difference between news and literature, too, and how it's news that stays alive for longer, or it has a bigger social importance, perhaps. Yeah, and we can, you know, we can look back, you know, if Hippocampus is still around in 20 years, we can go back and look at the essays from 2018 or, you know, or gosh, 2016 and 2017 and say, well, this is what the world was like back then or the country was like back then and, and what we were writing about and what mattered to us then. What kind of writing do you feel eager to see more of 
right now? Like you're talking, I guess, already about resilience, the underdog. Is there anything specific that's been missing in the submissions that you received? Yeah, I mean, to go back to your point about getting more stories that we haven't heard yet, I mean, we definitely want more of that. And, you know, it's funny because since we haven't heard them yet, we don't know what they are, but we just want to be surprised and we want to see new things. I just started reading a new anthology called The Shell Game, which is a collection of hermit crab essays. And we have run some experimental and hybrid creative nonfiction. And I think I would like to see more of that. Of course, it would have to be able to be formatted in the template that we use, so it can't be too crazy. But we would love to see more hybrid things, more playing with form. And humor is sometimes hard to pull off online. You know, we see it all the time with texts and Facebook messages that, you know, get taken out of context. Like I was being sarcastic or I was trying to be funny. So humor is really hard to pull off sometimes in in essays, but we would love to see more funny things because as you can imagine, we see a lot of heavy material. Not that people are reading an online magazine in the same way that they would read a book where you might arrange, you know, a lighter essay in the middle where they could have room to breathe. You know, people are kind of clicking in and off websites, but we still would like to have some lighter content that's funny. We do have one in this issue. It's by Amy Fish. Uh, She's from Quebec. It's when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time, a story in eight parts. And there's an important lesson in there, but she also has a really great brand of humor. We'd like to see more things like that. I'm so glad you mentioned that piece. I just saved it to read later today, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's an important life lesson about how people treat you, but it's through this lens of humor and almost like not making fun of herself, but for lack of a better word, just knowing who she is and the choices she's making. Yeah, it came across my Twitter feed and people were really excited about her publishing it. In fact, I love what she had said about it being published too, that it had been a long time dream for her to publish in Hippocampus and now coming true with this piece. And I guess that leads to my next question a bit too, because I imagine you get a lot of submissions as a really desirable place to publish your creative nonfiction. So what is your current acceptance rate of slush in the magazine, like the percentage that you will accept? The last time I checked, it was like around the 5% mark. And we do nine regular issues a year, and then we have a theme issue. And this year's theme issue was called Keepsakes. And we're still making the decisions for that. But we are only going to run, well, usually it's eight to 10 stories a month, but we might run a few more in this issue. But we got 230 submissions just for the keepsakes category, which is our annual special issue. So it's really hard to narrow things down. And I think if there's anything I could say to anybody who's submitting a literary magazine, it's like, even if your work is fantastic, we still only have so much space. And sometimes it's a matter of picking something, you know, a theme we haven't saw before or you know if we have a lot of grief stories even if yours is great maybe we need to take a break from running that type of story but i would say you know the five to eight percent seems to be about generally where we are with submissions that seems kind of high actually so that's good (laughs) from what i've heard from a lot of publications and it might be lower than that but i just um because i kind of factor it in with with all of our special categories but i'm going to look into it now because i don't want to make it seem higher than it is yeah yeah yeah. i take the point that you say about finding balance and i think you've already given enough context for people about that too it's like if you've got a whole bunch of heavy stuff in one issue, then you're going to look for some light stuff to balance it. And so your piece could be amazing, but it just isn't going to be a fit 
And we also accept on a rolling basis too. So I think it's also fair to say, oh, okay, well, we would want to run a story like this again, but not for months and months from now. So I think it's almost fair to just say, okay, not now, you know, because sometimes we toy with the idea of closing. We close for submissions now in January and February. So we're open from March until December, but we don't have set reading periods for a set issue. Like some of the other magazines that do, especially ones that are affiliated with universities, you know, it's pretty much this is what we have, we pick from this, and then we're done until we get the next set. So since we're on a rolling basis, we're just choosing, you know, what's in our queue at that time. At Room, we do four issues a year, and it's two themed and two are open theme, but then they have to fit into a bigger theme. And one theme of this podcast, me talking to other editors, has been to realize how there's definitely more flexibility when you don't have the set themes. I love the theme issues that we do. And and then, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, gosh, maybe we should do two theme issues a year um, because they are fun. So I, I like that you have that mix where you do part theme, part general. I think that's something for everybody. And I would recommend that if any writer is listening to this and they see calls for themes to not just take an existing essay and put a paragraph on top, you know, that tries to like squeeze a theme into something it's not because I've seen that done before. So I think it should naturally and organically fit the theme. And the flip side of that, if I can mention to someone who's edited a few issues, as the editor often we're not, we want to be surprised too by what comes out from the theme too. So don't feel like you know exactly like this narrow category that the theme has to fall into. It could still be loosely affiliated, but I agree, don't slap on something. Things can be interpreted so many ways. And and I see the same thing at story slams. When I go to our local story slam here, the theme could be, you know, one thing, and then there's 12 completely different stories. And it's so awesome to see how people approach it. The theme that we were doing, we were looking for stories about radio, and you could tell that the person just added a paragraph that said that somebody in his family used to listen to a radio, and then it was never mentioned again in the whole entire (laughs) essay. (laughs) So that one was, you could tell, but yeah, definitely if there's a theme that's more abstract, yeah, you have to really read it and think about it, because on the surface, it might not seem like it fits with the theme, but maybe it does. So... Hippocampus is an online journal. It is a conference called Hippocamp. And you also started a publishing house just a few years ago. What's next? What what else do you have planned for the future of Hippocampus right now? Well, I think this happy trifecta of magazine, books, and conference will be about all we can handle for now because we have a volunteer team that helps us out in various areas. But for the most part, it's still pretty much me doing the administration and the heavy lifting and everything. So I don't know how much we can physically take on, but if we were to do one more thing, my dream is to have a physical space somewhere, like and maybe in our community where we could just have a space for workshops and to hold events and be a bigger part of our local community. So that would be something I want. And I've also had this dream for a really long time. And I don't know that I've ever mentioned it to anybody before, like on a podcast or in an interview, but I love camping. And my dream is to get an RV or at least a camper and wrap it in our logo and call it the hippo camper and do a tour across the country and just go to different bookstores or different campgrounds or different places and just do readings. But then that would also fulfill my personal dream of RVing for a little while. You know, that would be probably like a, maybe like a one-time thing, but I do, I would love to have some type of local space.
That's so great to think about your local community and becoming a hub for arts there, but also traveling around. I would love to see the hippocamper drive down the street here. Yeah, I think that would be so fun. And I just love the name. And again, I like puns and I like play on words. And I just, I think that'd be cool. And then, you know, with the hippocamp, our conferences in Lancaster and the city that we're in, we're not necessarily easy to get to because we're about an hour from major airports. But maybe in the future we would do like maybe every other year do a version of the conference or a day long event in another part of the country. So like maybe Hippocamp West or Hippocamp in the Heartland or do something in the Midwest. I love it. Well, good luck with all of that. And thank you so much for being my guest today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Rachel. I enjoyed it. So summing up what we learned from Donna Tellerico of Hippocampus is first and foremost to take a step back and think about the reader. And that's particularly important when you're writing creative nonfiction. And for her, she often sees things that are not furthering the story in pieces that don't make it into Hippocampus. Now, Hippocampus has a fairly quick turnaround. So she is picking stories that are pretty much there. They don't have a lot of time to go back and forth with writers, but they also have a tiered decline process. So if they send something back to you with encouraging feedback, asking you to submit again, then take some time, take a month at least to work on it, but then do send it back. It's a real invitation because I know sometimes writers think, oh, they're just saying that. No, we have confirmation here that at Hippocampus, they're saying, please do send it back. As far as taste goes, she's saying her taste is for works that are of coming of age stories, stories of resilience and identity. And then she's also looking for more hybrid things. And she mentioned the Hermit Crab essay that we've talked about in previous episodes too, and that they get a lot of heavy materials and they would like to see more funny things. And by the way, since talking with Donna, I have read that essay by Amy Fish called When Someone Shows You Who They Are, Believe Them the First Time, A Story in Eight Parts, which I think was really an excellent piece in terms of humor and also in terms of structure, too. So reading something like that, reading a lot of what's on Hippocampus, of course, is going to give you clues about what they're looking for, too. And even if your work is fantastic, she reminds us that it's really still a matter of picking So don't get too discouraged if your piece isn't accepted. And again, listen when they're asking to see more work. Lit Mag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, Literature, Art and Feminism since 1975, and by We Write, We Light, which are online courses and more to help you polish and publish your writing. Sound editing for the episode, as always, is done by the wonderful Micah Lemiski, who is also the host of Fainting Couch Feminists, which is another podcast presented by Room. You can find us online at litmaglovepodcast.com or on Twitter or Instagram at litmaglove.